Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer in for Stephanie Cox. Here today's top stories. Race no longer a factor, at least according to the Supreme Court's latest ruling. How the High Court's latest decision on college admissions could impact students across the country and how President Biden is reacting. Worsening air quality in D.C. and across much of the upper portion of the U.S., leading to renewed calls for a climate emergency, while some lawmakers push to block President Biden from declaring one. Republican House committees are ramping up their probe into the Biden family's foreign business dealings. This in response to recent whistleblower testimony alleging that the president is being protected. Two of Russia's top generals have disappeared since the failed mutiny. Is Russia's military going through a massive purge? And former Vice President Mike Pence today visiting Ukraine, talking about ongoing military support from the U.S. He's the first Republican presidential candidate to visit the country. A landmark ruling by the Supreme Court today, striking down affirmative action used in college admissions. NTD's Iris Tao has more from the White House. Hey, good evening, Tiff. Today in the 6-3 ruling, the Supreme Court ruled officially to end the practice of affirmative action used in college admission process. And what that means is that colleges nationwide, let them be private or public ones, will now have to stop using race as a factor of consideration when deciding whether or not to admit a student or not. And today outside the Supreme Court, we talked to some of the supporters and opponents of the ruling. Let's take a listen. Asian Americans had to score 273 points higher in the SAT to have the same chance of admission as a black person to Harvard. That ends. Is, it's invalidating to my experience and my identity, and I think it's important to protest against this. So this whole case started when a group called Students for Fair Admissions sued Harvard University, saying that Asian and white students were discriminated against because of their race. They say that even though they got higher test scores and did well in extracurricular activities, it was still harder for them to get in compared with some let's say African-American students or Latino students. But Harvard University and the University of North Carolina, which was also sued for the same reason, argued that it was necessary for them to consider race in their admission process because it was needed to promote diversity on college campuses. But today we know that the high court ruled against Harvard and UNC, saying that they violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, adding that eliminating racial discrimination means eliminating all of it. And today, the group that sued and won was applauding that ruling. Marks the beginning of the restoration of the colorblind legal covenant that binds together our multiracial, multiethnic nation. The rulings help preserve the meritocracy, which is the bedrock of the American dream. But President Biden, who has long been supportive of affirmative action, and said today that he strongly disagrees with the ruling. Equal opportunity, it is not everywhere across this country. We cannot let this decision be the last word. And it's noteworthy that the ruling today actually did mention the fact that there's nothing stopping colleges from considering what a student talks about his race and let's say his college admission essay, as long as it's just a part of a more comprehensive look at the person's quality of character. But President Biden is reportedly already looking into taking executive actions to try to counter the impact of the ruling today. Reporting from the White House, Aris Tao, NTD News.
The Supreme Court also made another major ruling today on religious freedom and First Amendment rights. The case is about a Christian mail carrier for the U.S. Postal Service. The mail carrier Gerald Groff sued after the Postal Service stopped accommodating his request not to work on Sunday. In the ruling, Supreme Court justices unanimously decided that a lower court set the bar too low for employers. Prior to the ruling, employers could reject a religious accommodation if it imposed even a minor cost on the business. The Supreme Court has now specified that an employer must show the cost would be substantial. Air quality worsening in D.C. today due to Canadian wildfires has led to renewed calls for President Biden to declare a climate emergency, while some lawmakers are hopeful to block this effort. NTD's Melina Weiskup has the details. More than 100 million people in the U.S. are under air quality alerts as much of the Midwest and Northeast are still being hit by wildfire smoke coming from Canada's 450 wildfires. This morning, cities like Chicago and Washington, D.C. hit a code red. And just this afternoon, IQ Air ranked Washington, D.C. the second worst in the world, just behind Detroit. There's significant concern, especially for people that suffer from certain health conditions. So. I suggest that everyone begins to incorporate that into their daily routine of checking the weather, also checking the air quality, also checking the air quality forecast. A prominent climate group who we often see on Capitol Hill renewed calls for President Biden to declare a climate emergency, which would give him powers to implement climate rules more directly. Biden has in the past described climate as an emergency, but has not yet officially designated it to be one. Here's how he describes the climate issue in his most recent climate-related speech. You know, I've toured many sites across the country that clearly show climate change is, is a genuine, is the existential threat to humanity. The existential threat to humanity. The White House last year said declaring an emergency was a possibility, but since has stepped back. The administration, when asked about the issue now, points to investments in climate projects and tax cuts for renewable energy. Though some in Congress, including Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, previously suggested that Biden should go ahead. But other lawmakers are hopeful to stop this emergency before it happens. Congressman August Fluker and Senator Capito earlier this week introduced a bill that would prohibit Biden from implementing a climate emergency. Although this bill would be hard to get the 60 votes needed to pass the evenly split Senate, there have been some Democrats in the past that have expressed support for such a move. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. House Republicans today requested interviews with Justice Department officials in the Hunter Biden probe. This comes as the Oversight Committee urges the Treasury Department to turn over suspicious activity reports related to an alleged Biden scheme. NTD's legal correspondent has more. In a letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland today, chairs of three House committees requested interviews with over a dozen employees with the DOJ, the IRS, and the Secret Service. This comes in response to whistleblower testimony of misconduct by these agencies in their probe of Hunter Biden's alleged tax crimes. IRS whistleblower Gary Shapley has testified that Delaware U.S. Attorney David Weiss told him he didn't have full authority to charge Hunter Biden. Garland and Weiss later contended that he had complete authority. House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan said somebody's lying. 
I don't think it's Mr. Shapley who has put together a timeline, memorialized all the things that he's done in the course of this investigation. So I think Joe Biden has said things that don't square with what the whistleblower said. The attorney general has certainly said things that don't square with what the whistleblower has related to us. Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said if they find out Garland was lying, they will begin impeachment proceedings. Jordan also said Weiss was blocked from prosecuting in other state jurisdictions. When he goes to the Central District of L.A. and that U.S. attorney turns him down, what that meant in practice was they couldn't bring any charge, any tax year concerns of 2014 to 15, and that was all about Burisma. So in, in effect, Hunter Biden, all the hundreds of thousand dollars he got paid, he never had to pay taxes on that. Burisma is the Ukrainian-based energy firm in which the younger Biden served on the board of directors. The company allegedly bribed then-Vice President Joe Biden with $5 million. On Thursday, the House Oversight Committee called on Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen to turn over suspicious activity reports related to Burisma. In a letter, Chairman James Comer said subpoenaed bank records have revealed transactions that allowed Biden family members and associates to profit over $10 million from foreign sources. They were funneled through LLCs. We knew about several LLCs, but when we got access to Treasury, we found more LLCs. So we found more shell accounts, more bank accounts, and more Bidens. The committees reiterate in both letters their power to conduct oversight and state that the information they're requesting is key in order for them to institute legislative reforms. Tiffany? Earlier today, Hunter Biden was deposed in the defamation case brought by Delaware computer repair shop owner John Paul McIsaac. McIsaac received three laptops in April 2019 from a man he believed to be Hunter Biden. He said the customer didn't return within 90 days and he couldn't get in touch with him. One salvageable laptop ended up in the hands of the FBI. In March, Hunter Biden countersued, alleging McIsaac unlawfully distributed Biden's personal data and accusing him of six counts of invasion of privacy. A Florida jury found the Parkland School Resource Officer not guilty on all counts related to his actions during the 2018 mass shooting. When the judge read the verdict Thursday afternoon, Scott Peterson bowed his head and wept. Peterson had been charged with 11 counts, including felony child neglect and culpable negligence. Peterson stayed outside Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School as a gunman killed 17 people, including 14 students. Prosecutors said he ignored his training. Defense attorneys said Peterson couldn't tell where the shots were coming from. The shooter is serving life in prison without parole. Coming up, violent protests in France following the fatal shooting of a 17-year-old by police. Riots broke out across the nation and law enforcement responded with tear gas and arrests. And is a Chinese clothing company recruiting social media influencers to hide its use of forced labor? We hear from a China expert. These stories and more when we return. Welcome back. Two of Russia's top generals have been missing since the failed mutiny, and reports say they could be getting interrogated to find out their loyalty to the country. NTD's Jason Perry has the latest. 
Russian President Vladimir Putin appeared unfazed as he greeted supporters just days after the Russian military was almost overthrown within its own borders. But while Putin smiles to the crowd, the Russian military may be undergoing a massive purge. Two Russian generals have not been seen or heard from since the mutiny attempt. Former Defense Secretary William Cohen commented about what could be going through Putin's mind. That President Putin has got to have his neck on a swivel, turning around and around 360 degrees, saying, who is with me, who's against me? Again, who's a patriot, who's a traitor? And right now, he's got to be very suspicious of the people of his closest advisory team, both the government and also the military. The two missing officers are General Sergei Sorovikin and General Valery Gerasimov. Their disappearance could have a large impact on Russia's war in Ukraine, as General Gerasimov is the commander of Russia's military operations in Ukraine, and General Sorovikin is the deputy commander. On Thursday, a reporter asked Russian presidential spokesman Dmitry Peskov if he could comment on General Sorovikin's whereabouts. Unfortunately, no. I recommend you contact the defense ministry. This is the ministry's prerogative. Some have reported that the generals and other senior officers are being interrogated about their loyalty and alleged indecisiveness in putting down the mercenary mutiny. But why was the man who led the mutiny attempt, mercenary chief Yevgeny Prigozhin, let off the hook so easily? A former Russian minister of foreign affairs gave his take on it. He uh, criticized uh, somebody inside the mafia for being for not being effective enough. But uh, everybody knew that he was not challenging a political line. Prigozhin flew into exile to Belarus on Tuesday, along with some of his fighters. The Belarus president said he invited Wagner to set up operations in his country as part of the deal that ended the mutiny. And recent satellite imagery shows a possible new military base being constructed for the Wagner Group in Belarus. NATO Secretary Jen Stoltenberg said it's not yet clear how many of the Wagner forces will end up in Belarus or other places. He said what matters for NATO is that they will continue to support Ukraine. Jason Perry, NTD News. Former Vice President Mike Pence is visiting Ukraine today. He's the first Republican presidential candidate to visit the country during the war. Here's a summary of his trip. Mr. President. Former U.S. Vice President Mike Pence made a surprise visit to Ukraine on Thursday. Pence, who is running for president as a Republican, met with President Volodymyr Zelensky at the presidential palace in Kyiv. Unlike other Republican presidential hopefuls, Pence keeps voicing strong support for Ukraine. We'll continue to do everything in our power to make sure that we provide the Ukrainian military with the support they need. This is in stark contrast to what former President Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis have previously said. They indicated that it's not in America's best interest to support Ukraine's military. Pence, however, who is trailing far behind Trump and DeSantis in the polls, made it clear support for Ukraine should continue. Until they repel the Russian invasion and restore the sovereignty of this country. Pence on Thursday visited three cities and villages near Kyiv. That's to see the destruction from Russian shelling since the start of the invasion. During his visit, Pence said that supporting Ukraine will make it clear to Russia, to China, and any other nations in the world that would seek to redraw international lines by force that the free world will not stand for it. Pence is the first Republican presidential candidate to meet Zelensky during the campaign. He already visited Ukraine last year, 
but that was before he announced his run. Both trips were organized by Samaritan's Purse, an American evangelical disaster relief charity. Also on Thursday, newly released financial records show that Pence made $1.4 million with his memoir. It recounted the events of January 6th and his refusal to support Trump in questioning the election results. He also made over $3 million by giving speeches. The most expensive one he gave was in Japan for over half a million dollars. Violent expressions of outrage have entered their second day across France after police shot and killed a 17-year-old at a traffic stop. French President Emmanuel Macron is attempting to contain a mounting crisis looming over the nation. NTD's Sam Wong has the story. An angry crowd took to the streets of Paris, calling for justice for the 17-year-old shot dead by the police the day before. I trust the police for many things, but there's been an increase in the number of deaths for no good reason, and that shouldn't happen. We have something here that resembles an execution, but we'll see what the investigation yields and what the justice system says. The mother of the youth was also present at the tribute march. The teen who was killed is identified only by his first name, Nahil. He was of African descent, brought up in an Algerian household. On Tuesday, Nahel was spotted driving a yellow Mercedes in a bus lane in the suburb of Nanterre. Officers said that the youth refused to comply with police orders after they pulled him over. The moment he started his car and began to drive off, one officer fired a shot at him, which led to his death. Thousands of protesters railed against what they perceived as a trend of police brutality, and members of law enforcement on the scene were seen scuffling with marchers and responding with tear gas. Footage shows black smoke and soaring flames from several cars that have been torched in the streets. As conflicts escalate in France, the nation's interior ministry is mobilizing police across the nation. It plans to deploy 5,000 officers to Paris alone. Around 180 arrests were made during the second night of the unrest. The officer who opened fire is now under investigation for voluntary homicide. French President Emmanuel Macron said that violence against police is not justified. The last hours have been marked by violent scenes against police stations and also against schools and town halls, basically against institutions and the republic. It's absolutely unjustifiable. Macron on Wednesday described the shooting as inexcusable in a rare criticism of law enforcement. Tuesday's incident marks the third fatal shooting during traffic stops in France so far this year. Sam Wong, NTD News. A group of American social media influencers facing backlash after a recent trip to China. They were invited to tour a Xi'an factory in China's southern manufacturing hub. The influencers showered praise onto the Chinese clothing company during the visit. But many online suggest they were shown a false picture of what's really going on. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more. Multiple tags say need your help. A social media influencer told her half-million followers on Instagram that she's more confident than ever in her partnership with Xi'an after visiting the company's factory in Guangzhou, China. Another that toured the factory said she was pleasantly surprised. But is the company as ethical as it claims? The factory was one of thousands that Xi'an uses. The fast fashion retailer is accused of using forced labor in its clothing supply chains. A bipartisan group of U.S. lawmakers sent a letter to the chair of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission in May, claiming there are credible allegations of Xi'an using underpaid and forced labor. U.S. senators penned a letter to Xi'an's CEO earlier this year over concerns of the company using cotton from China's Xinjiang region. A menswear writer on Twitter took issue with the influencer's endorsement. 
He says in his post that he can't help but feel that these influencers were chosen to make Sheehan look progressive to a Western audience, while the company runs a sweatshop in the back to make clothes out of polyester and lead. A CBC Marketplace investigation found some Sheehan items had high levels of chemicals in them, like lead. Health Canada issued a recall for a toddler jacket in 2021. It contained close to 20 times the legal amount of lead for a product allowed to be sold in Canada. Others online said the influencers are taking away from the work of investigative journalists and Sheehan factory workers who risked everything to film the reality of Sheehan's workplace conditions. An influencer strategist on TikTok accused the influencers of acting as PR crisis managers and advised them to be more cautious when accepting partnerships. Sheehan is valued at close to $100 billion and churns out over 6,000 new designs a day on average. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Sheehan claims to have zero tolerance for forced labor. It said in an email to the Epoch Times that it is committed to respecting human rights and adhering to local laws. For analysis of the Sheehan debacle, NTD's Chris Beers spoke with Stephen Yates, former White House Deputy National Security Advisor and Chair of the China Policy Initiative at the America First Policy Institute. Stephen Yates, thank you for joining us. My pleasure, thank you. Stephen, Chinese company Xi'in gave an all-expenses-paid trip to social media influencers, and now it's blowing up in their face. What do you make of all this? Well, in some sense, it's very striking that this kind of an activity has gone on for a very long time. Uh, the, the Chinese Communist Party has invited government officials, think tank leaders, journalists, uh, movie actors, game makers, a whole host of people. And this is kind of standard operating procedure to bring people over, give them the bright and shiny dog and pony show. They come away with some swag and positive experiences and they say wonderful things about new modern China when they come back and promote U.S.-China relations, all positives. And so they've done this in so many different ways. Now, though, I think people are looking at social media differently. The controversy about TikTok, I think, has changed the narrative. And people are wondering, is this some kind of influence operation? And the answer is, of course, yes, it is. It always has been. But now people, I think, are more aware and sensitive to it. And if it is an influence operation, what's the motive behind it? Usually it's just, to, as I say, it's almost a form of proselytization, missionary work, where people go and they, they want to see what the, they can for themselves, see the positives. Uh, and, uh, and you know, they, they obviously don't take them to show where the Uyghurs are being persecuted to the point of genocide. Uh, they don't show the political prisoners in Hong Kong. Uh, they, they take them to the places where it looks modern, prosperous, uh, and enticing. Uh, and then hopefully they'll use their audiences on social media to promote U.S.-China trade, uh, be uh, advocates for kind of cooling off in what has been a tense period in U.S.-China relations and maybe push back against those, maybe like me, who are critics of the Communist Party, uh, suggesting that there's, there's teeth, even fangs, behind that smile. Now, Stephen, how does this relate back to Chinese company TikTok and how it influences uh, American youth? Well, I think people have known for some time that there are these accounts that blow up in size and they get huge followings and everyone from brand name uh, uh, items at home to politicians 
want to hitch their wagons to that. I mean, President Joe Biden was famously interviewed by a TikTok influencer that seemed colorful and a little bit offbeat for modern politics. Uh, and of course, Budweiser tried to jump onto the social influencer bandwagon and it didn't go as planned for them. So it seems like right now, people have found out that there are these accounts that go big. You can try to hook onto them. Uh, it may or may not work for you, but it seems like this particular one went about as well for China as the Bud Light campaign went for them. Now, let's zoom out a little bit because I think this next topic is related. Can you talk about the CCP's psychological warfare tactics against their enemies? Well, in many, many ways, what they'll try to do is to make you feel like the other if you have an opinion that is critical of them. Uh, just use a, a, for instance, I have a very, very good friend of mine uh, who was in the countryside of China. He saw a woman taken into a tent where uh, a child was removed against her will, uh, and he couldn't unsee that. Uh, and so when he would talk about that, they would try to say, well, you know, maybe you didn't really see what you saw, or there's all these other positives. Uh, there are people who would see someone being beaten. Uh, even something as famous as the Tiananmen Massacre. They try to pretend as if that didn't happen, and that's not today's China. And if you keep bringing that up, there's something kind of wrong with you. Can't you see that everyone else is getting along just fine? Uh, and so they can use these kinds of campaigns where they can appeal to the associations in which you belong, say like the American Bar Association. Uh, they could use the people you associate with, maybe in the fashion industry. Uh, and if you get in their good graces, it makes you the other where you're afraid to speak out about human rights, abuses, and maybe even national security concerns about the entanglements that American firms might have there. Stephen Yates, thank you for that informative analysis. My pleasure. Thank you. Coming up, the Supreme Court is likely to rule on President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan tomorrow. Will tens of millions of borrowers get the relief they were hoping for? California is another step closer to implementing a first in the nation, reparations for black residents. Now it's up to state lawmakers and the governor to review the proposal. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. The Supreme Court rules against affirmative action in higher education. This essentially bans colleges from considering students' race in their admission process. Over a hundred million Americans under air quality alerts as smoke from Canadian wildfires sweeps across the country. Detroit just recorded the worst air in the world. House Republicans pressing forward with the investigation into Hunter Biden. They are requesting interviews with the Justice Department and documents from the Treasury. Russian President Vladimir Putin appears unaffected by the short-lived Wagner mutiny, but two military generals have gone missing, and satellite images indicate the Wagner group is building a base in Belarus. Riots spread across in France after a teenager was shot dead by police earlier this week. Protesters clashed with law enforcement in multiple French cities. 
And the Supreme Court is likely to rule on President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan tomorrow. Over $400 billion in student debt is at stake. NTD's Colin Fredrickson catches us up on the situation. The Supreme Court is likely to issue a ruling on President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan on Friday. The plan would be the most expensive in the history of the United States at an estimated cost of over $400 billion. This would wipe out over a quarter of all student debt for tens of millions of Americans. The major legal challenge comes from six Republican-led states, which say the plan would hurt them financially. They own or create entities that service student loans or because they own collateralized student loans as a form of investment. And in either case, the argument is that mass cancellation, which is going to eliminate a whole swath of loans, which is going to reduce the repayment time for a, a whole other swath of loans, is going to inflict a pecuniary or financial injury on the states. Jack Fitzhenry is a legal expert at the Heritage Foundation. He believes the court will strike down the plan, but admits there's still a chance it won't. Fitzhenry says the court may find the states have a good argument. The court may also question whether President Biden has the power to cancel over $400 billion in debt single-handedly. Republicans have criticized the plan, saying it's unfair to people who won't have their loan debts forgiven and that it encourages more borrowing. Democrats support the plan. They say it helps millions of Americans in debt and may stimulate the economy. You should be able to read the court's ruling tomorrow at 10 a.m. Eastern Time at supremecourt.gov. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. And as we reported earlier in the show, the Supreme Court's ruling against affirmative action is causing shockwaves at colleges across the U.S. Earlier, NTD's Jack Bradley spoke with Jeff Hunt, director of the Centennial Institute at Colorado Christian University, to hear his take on the decision. Jeff Hunt, thank you for coming on. It's great to have you. It's great to be with you. So I want to get your thoughts about this case. The Supreme Court just ruled against affirmative action. What are your thoughts here? Yeah, well, in many ways, it's the vindication of college Republicans doing affirmative action bake sales for years, that this is not the right thing to do for our country. We want to judge people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. And so conservatives have been really driving this idea that we can't just be focusing in on people's skin color. Uh, we understand we're not trying to ignore history or we, we understand that people have been seriously discriminated against based upon the color of their skin in this country. But to continue to perpetuate this idea that we're going to judge people by the color of their skin rather than the content of their character is something that it's just time to move on from. I mean, my daughter, for instance, is about 14 years old. She was born in 2009. She's going to be going to college here in about four or five years. The idea that people born in 2009, 2005 are still facing the same systemic dis uh, discrimination that folks faced right after the Civil War or right during Jim Crow, that's just not true. And so we can't continue to allow these systems to take place. Uh, the truth is you should get into college based upon the merit of your education and your intellect, not based upon other factors that you can't control. And so it's a good day, not just for conservatives who have been arguing this line of thinking for years, but for America. These are the principles that we embrace, that you judge somebody by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. 
And now President Biden just came out uh, giving a speech afterward. He's, he opposed the decision by the Supreme yeah. Court. And he also said that colleges should consider um, the challenges that students have gone through, including racial discrimination. What are your thoughts on this? Well, if someone's faced serious racial discrimination, they're allowed to talk about that in their college applications. They can write essays about it. They can describe how they've overcome these challenges. But the idea that we're going to create systems by where people that are high achieving, like Asian Americans, are somehow discounted simply because of the color of their skin is just un-American. It's not fair. Those that work hard, irregardless of your skin color, should have as many opportunities for them as possible. And if you're not achieving, if you're not qualified to be able to enter those schools, well, there's plenty of other options for you. And history has shown this, that oftentimes where affirmative action has taken place, it hasn't worked out in what it intended to do. And here's a bigger issue. At what point do we finally shut this down? At what point do we finally become the country we want to become, where we're judging people solely based upon the content of their character? I was disappointed in Katanji Brown Jackson's uh, dissent, where she essentially granted that we're never going to be a colorless society. We're always going to be judging people based upon the color of their skin. I refuse to believe in America that can do that. I want an America that does judge somebody simply by the content of their character. This is what makes America great. It's the best place to pursue the greatest opportunity for yourself simply by working hard and following the rules. That's the way it should be. We just don't want to create systems by which people are explicitly discriminated against simply based upon their skin color. And I think vast majority of Americans agree with that. The polling shows that even with Democrats, they don't want people judged based upon their skin color. Well, Jeff Hunt, thank you so much for your time. Excellent conversation. Great to be with you. God bless you. California's Reparations Task Force, a first in the nation, just concluded its two years of work. Members officially submitted documents to the state legislature suggesting recommendations to compensate black residents in what they call an apology to descendants of slaves. NDD's David Lamb reports. On June 29th, California's nine-member Reparations Task Force concluded its final report and had a meeting this morning. They propose their findings to the officials. Now, the team was created two years ago by Governor Gavin Newsom to evaluate the impact that black Californians have experienced. So often when I was asked, when I was writing it, people said, California, why California? And the issue often is why not? Because slavery in this nation went across the entire nation. People didn't just remain in the South. And the policies and the laws of this nation affected every state and many places beyond the state. The team recommends a formal apology to descendants of slaves, financial compensation, as well as a new agency to oversee the reparations. Now, I spoke to several folks in California before, and they told me that direct cash payments wouldn't be ideal. One lady suggested a college fund instead. Another person was saying land or property would be better than cash payments. Now, although there was no recommended cash amount, the task force has previously provided a calculation of around $500 billion that the state would have to pay for reparations. 
which amounts up to 1.2 million for each qualified black resident. Meanwhile, the state currently has a budget of nearly $300 billion. Governor Gavin Newsom previously said, quote, dealing with legacy is about much more than cash payments. Lawmakers and Newsom would have to agree before reparations would happen. David Lamb, Entity News, California. Staying in California in a recent city council meeting in a beach town, residents urged city leaders to address homelessness and public safety. NTD's David Zhang has more. The promenade, the library, they've turned into absolute hellholes. Even though crime and homelessness weren't on the Santa Monica City Council's agenda, over a dozen Santa Monica residents still brought their concerns to the council. Residents said the increase in crime has left some fearful to walk the streets. A homeless woman ran out to the road and started pounding on my car violently. She removed her clothing. My son went to school. He saw two homeless people defecating. But you cannot go to California Pizza Kitchen. You can't tour the pier. Some of you already can carry public spray or what? Safety spray when you walk the streets in Santa Monica. Think about that. You're elected officials and you have to carry pepper spray. I'm here this evening on behalf of several large hotel operators in Santa Monica to plead for your help in addressing what's become an unattainable situation of homelessness, crime, harassment, and filthy conditions on Ocean Avenue and in Palisades Park. There are many celebrities who have lived in Santa Monica. Among them are Tom Cruise, Sandra Bullock, and David Beckham. But over the years, the city has been in decline, and actors have moved out or in the process of moving out. And we know many people in our neighborhood, which is 90402, who don't want to live here anymore. They want to move. They want to move to Arizona, Nevada, Texas, Florida. They don't really want to move, but they feel like it's a lousy deal here. A point in time count conducted in January reported there are close to 1,000 homeless people in Santa Monica. Several residents voiced their frustration. Stop coddling homeless, vagrants, and mentally ill. It is not fair to the people who pay taxes and who live here. We're all liberal, democratic people for the most part here. It's gone too far. The homeless people should not be running the city. The city spends an estimated $42.5 million a year on homeless services and programs. And the city website says that crimes are lower than pre-pandemic levels in Santa Monica. Coming up, a rarity in baseball last night by a Yankees pitcher. But just how uncommon is a perfect game? And a seemingly half-serious tweet about an MMA cage fight between Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg is becoming a growing possibility. The two CEOs have been spotted training. Welcome back, and now for your sports news, we have NTD's Dave Martin joining us. Dave, there was a perfect game pitched in the major, major leagues last night. Now, how rare of an accomplishment is this? 
in a word, very. You know, baseball traces back its history to the 1870s. That's 150 years ago, and last night's was just the 24th perfect game in Major League history. Now, there have been more than 300 no-hitters uh, all time, but really a perfect game is a subset of that. Not only is it no hits, it's no walks, it's no errors on your defense. It's 27 batters up, 27 batters down. It's not even every day that you get no walks or no errors. You know, the funny thing about this too is a Hall of Famer like Nolan Ryan, seven no-hitters all time, that's, that's the most ever, never pitched a perfect game. Meanwhile, Domingo Herman last night of the Yankees, never been an all-star, he's 30 years old, never got a Cy Young vote, and he's been struggling lately, and he throws a perfect game. It kind of shows how unpredictable baseball can be. And moving on to the Yankees, crosstown rival the Mets. Owner Steve Cohen seemed pretty disappointed in his team yesterday. What did you make of that? Yeah, it sounded like he gave them an ultimatum, you know, win or we're having a fire sale. He's got every right to be disappointed. They have a $360 million payroll. That's the highest in the big leagues this year by a ways. That's the highest in major league history by a ways. I mean, the second most is the Dodgers eight years ago at $290 million. He's looking at a $100 million tax bill for this. Meanwhile, all he has to show for it is a team that's in fourth place, eight games below 500, 16 and a half out of first place, eight and a half out of the wild card. So he seemed to strongly hint that a trade deadline sell-off is a real possibility, and that could be a month away if it happens. And when you say sell-off, what exactly does that entail? Well, really, you look at your future and think, all right, what guys do we need to be here next year and what guys maybe won't be? If they're not going to be, you deal them for like a minor league player or something. Now, this was a team that was at the oldest opening day roster in baseball this year, and he was realistic about this. He said, you know, it doesn't really make sense to have an even older team come back next year. Now, who they deal might be a bit of a mystery. You know, is it Justin Verlander, Max Scherzer, both of them? If you do that, you certainly shave off a lot of payroll, which maybe makes them go after Shohei Otani, although knowing Steve Cohen, maybe he goes after Otani anyway. So maybe it's not the worst thing for their future after all. And switching gears to tennis now, a former number one player is making her return at age 32. That's after three years of retirement. Can you tell us about Caroline Wozniacki coming back? Yeah, she hasn't played in more than three and a half years. She's had two kids since then. Uh, now, all of a sudden, age 32, Canadian Open is going to be her, her next one in, uh, in August. That'll be her return to the court. And then she's going to be at the U.S. Open right after that. Now, she wasn't just any player. Like you said, she spent more than 70 weeks ranked number one. However, I got to say the list of athletes that have come, that have taken off that amount of time um, at this age, it's very, very difficult to, to try to come back at the same, uh, at the same place that they were. You know, even in tennis, just winning past age 30 is difficult. Steffi Graf won her 22 Grand Slams all before age 30. She retired at 30. Serena Williams is the exception. She won 10 after age 30. But after she took a year off in 2018 to have a kid, she didn't win any after that. It's very difficult to do, of course. But Wozniacki, she's a fan favorite. So at the very least, I think the fans are going to be glad to see her back on the court. Well, Dave, thank you so much for those updates. Thank you, Tiff.
In the latest on the growing possibility of a matchup between Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg, both billionaires have been seen training with top talent in mixed martial arts. And UFC's Dana White is already showing off a Zuckerberg versus Musk t-shirt. NTD's Jason Blair brings us more. Starting with a seemingly half-serious tweet by Elon Musk, a MMA cage fight between Musk and Meta's Mark Zuckerberg seems to be getting closer to becoming a reality. Both Musk and Zuckerberg have been seen training with podcaster and jiu-jitsu black belt Lex Friedman. Friedman said on YouTube on Sunday, quote, It's inspiring to see both Mark and Elon taking on the martial arts journey. I look forward to training with both of them in the months and years to come. Zuckerberg posted a video on Instagram training with jiu-jitsu fighter Mikey Musumeci, saying, quote, Great learning from jiu-jitsu legend Mikey Musumeci and starting to prepare for our MMA debuts. Zuckerberg has been training jiu-jitsu for over a year and won gold and silver medals in a tournament held in May in Woodside, California. Accomplished MMA fighter George St. Pierre offered to train Musk in a tweet in which Musk replied, Okay, let's do it. Musk's mother, May Musk, is against the fight and advised Elon in a tweet to, quote, fight with words only. She also responded to recent photos of Musk training with Friedman, saying, quote, Sorry, I can't like this. UFC President Dana White told TMZ on June 22nd that he has spoken with both Zuckerberg and Musk and that they are both, quote, absolutely dead serious. White went on to say that the fight would be the biggest in the history of the world. White was also seen on Twitter sporting a Zuckerberg versus Musk t-shirt. If a fight does happen, there's been talk about it being held in Las Vegas, but so far, an official announcement has not been made. Jason Blair, NTD News, California. If you have any news, tips, or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.